Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 44 of Sleep Talk and welcome Moira. Hello, Dave. So this month, the theme is alcohol. And we're going to be looking at the effects of alcohol on sleep and because it's something that's really common. Absolutely. Everyone's got an opinion on that. A lot, of, a lot of people say, oh, I can't sleep at all when I drink. And other people say, you know, I can't really sleep very well without it. So it's, it would be um, make for a very good conversation. So this week, Moira, what's happening in sleep this week? Well, we're preparing madly for Sleep Awareness Week next week which is wonderful that it's every year we have a week dedicated to that. So this week, in, well, this year in Australia, it's um, August 5 to 11. And the theme is sleep on it, memory and problem solving, so really highlighting the importance of sleep for our cognitive abilities. So that's good. We've got a few different people lined up as spokespeople and a new fact sheet on sleep and memory that we're releasing for the Sleep Health Foundation. So I'm yeah, looking forward to that. Also, one of the best things that happened in the last week or so with sleep for me was this event um, up at Albury, which is a, an art exhibition that's still going. It's on until another few weeks in August. And I highly recommend anyone who possibly could get up there. It's a three-hour drive from Melbourne. It's in between Melbourne and Sydney in Australia. But if you happen to be passing, it's a gorgeous gallery up there and they've got a an ongoing, very thought-provoking, really wonderful, very moving exhibition on sleep. And then what they did on one of the evenings last week, we had a, a panel discussion and I was fortunate enough to be invited to that and really enjoyed it, talking about sleep and then also other people on the um, panel of talking about art and art history and all those sorts of things like the sleeping form across how, how it's portrayed. Bay Bay was there. She's one of our colleagues. She's been on the podcast before. Yeah. She, she was excellent. It was really just a really, really enriching experience. Enriching experience. And I'll put it, we'll put a link to that show, that, that, that art show on the show notes. You know, I was jealous, you know, that when you see that crossover between sort of sleep, art, culture, yeah. Because that you know, sleep is at the nexus of a lot of those things. Oh, so to bring all absolutely. that together, that looked really cool. Yeah, it was really it was it, well, as I said, it was an honour and a privilege to be part of that. Because it's yeah, I think it's everything, isn't it? I think it's really nice to be able to think about just having the bridge between the the arts uh, and and science and health. That was great. So the theme for this month's podcast is alcohol and looking at the interaction between alcohol and sleep, because it is something that's very common. If we look society-wide, a high proportion of people report using alcohol to help with sleep. Depends on which studies you look at, but it's somewhere between 10% of the population reporting that they rely on alcohol to sleep. And in some of the Sleep Health Foundation work, around 40% of people saying they use some sort of sleep aid mm. to help with sleep, and alcohol, one of the most common, common ones of one. those. Yeah. But as we'll see, and as we'll hear... Alcohol is not necessarily a helpful thing for sleep. And the other population, one of my reasons for having this as a topic is clinically when I see people who've either previously used alcohol for sleep and are now having insomnia or are currently using alcohol for sleep, I find it a challenging population to treat. Very challenging. I think both of us would have many stories of, of various clients who would have taken to alcohol because it's, I don't know, it's cheaper, more accessible, you don't have to have the prescription, the stigma, much more sort of acceptable than a, a sleeping pill. But the side effects and the, the, the costs to the liver uh, and just all the other, and, and it's just so bad for the sleep. I mean, I can talk about that 
after we hear from our, our guest, because it was my honours thesis back in 1996. <laughs> Surely you're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the effects of alcohol and sleep, moderate, and, and it was a fascinating insight for me at that time. So to try and get some more insights, we had the chance to talk to Dr. Rowan O'Gill from Turning Point in Melbourne. And Rowan did his PhD in psychopharmacology, looking at sleep, the body clock, and illicit drug use. And since then, has been doing postdoctoral research, looking at behaviours such as shift work and drug use, and their impact on health and sleep. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, Rowan. Thank you very much for having me. So you're involved in a big burden of disease paper recently about alcohol in the community. How, how big a problem is it in the Australian community? It's a really good question, David. And the very first thing to point out is that the majority of Australians do drink alcohol and don't have a problem. There is a small proportion uh, who exceed the NHMRC guidelines for risky use and are involved alcohol-related problems. Uh, perhaps the majority of uh, your listeners don't realise that alcohol is associated with a significant number of different diseases, illnesses and injuries. And this includes long-term things like cancer, cardiovascular disease, as well as motor vehicle accidents or reductions in work performance and absenteeism. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, we're talking about sleep and that's what we're going to sort of get into a little bit more. But yeah, sometimes we underestimate the effect of alcohol and how pervasive it can be across all those different domains. So I think in, in terms of burden of disease, it's in the top 10 risk factors for both disability and death in the Australian population. And it's an avoidable risk factor. So I think it's something that uh, is a choice and something that we can pay more attention to. And has that been changing over time, either use of alcohol or the impact that alcohol is having on people in the community? If we look at a population level, over the last 10 or 15 years, per capita consumption of alcohol has remained relatively stable. However, having said that, we have a portion of high risk or risky drinkers who are drinking more, and that's associated with significant increases in harm in some of those diseases and illness categories that we've seen. So who's in that group? Who are the risky drinkers? People who drink a lot. You know, there's relevant guidelines that are bandied about, but we know that there's particular patterns of alcohol use associated with harm, and that includes binging or drinking more than four or five standard drinks in a single occasion, uh, mi mixing alcohol with other substances, including medications, can be risky, or engaging in other behaviours, such as driving a motor vehicle while you're intoxicated, they're all going to put you at increased risk of harm. And socially, how's alcohol different from some of the illicit drugs? You know, because it's seen as illicit, does that change availability, access, the way people conceptualise alcohol? Absolutely. So alcohol is widely available. So you can purchase online, you can purchase through bottle shops, restaurants, cafes, etc. Illicit drugs are much more harder to source they either come from a, an unregulated dealer or off the street or off the internet or dark web. In comparison to those, you know, alcohol has saturated the community. More socially, especially in Australia, alcohol is seen as part of the normal culture. It's associated with celebrations, both religious as well as, uh, you know, non-religious ones. It's associated with birthdays, Christmas, special events. And we know from some data that we collected at Turning Point uh, a few years ago now that major festivals and sporting events are associated with increases in the amount that people drink. So 
It has that social acceptance that other drugs don't have. So around sleep, there's that social acceptance. The having a nightcap is something people talk about, and it's a colloquialism, and it's often seen as a socially acceptable thing to do. Come home from work, have a glass of wine, put your feet up, or before bed, a little bit of scotch just to help settle things. Is that good? You know, is that bad? You know, what's the impact of that? I guess first, there's a really good study done by Sleep Health Foundation last year. They asked people how they normally cope with, you know, troubles getting to sleep. And a, a really high proportion, I think it was in the order of 40 to 50% of people were saying that they used alcohol in order to help them fall asleep. And in addition to that, there was a group that was using a significant amount, like eight plus standard drinks in order to help them fall asleep. So I, I think it is common. Having said that, alcohol is not a very good sleep aid. So in, in someone who's non-dependent, it'll help you fall asleep quicker or reduce that sleep latency. However, really change your underlying sleep architecture or those normal stages that you go through over the course of a normal night's sleep. It'll suppress your REM, uh, it'll change your slow wave sleep, and you often get a rebound uh, because the alcohol in the second half of the night is no longer in your system, so you get quite fragmented sleep. People reliant on, on alcohol in order to help them fall asleep often wake up and uh, report poor quality or a, a lack of the refreshing nature of sleep. Yeah, and in clinical practice I see that and I see people will then say, oh, well, I'm feeling tired during the day. It's because I'm still not getting enough minutes of sleep. So the remedy for that is increase the dose or exposure to alcohol and it becomes a bit of a mm -hmm. vicious cycle and alcohol consumption can just increase and increase. Absolutely. So you raise a really important point that uh, one of the most important factors when we consider alcohol's effects on sleep are tolerance and dependence. And uh, while I said initially that alcohol may help you fall asleep in small doses, you become tolerant to that effect within a few days. And so, as you say, you have to keep either increasing the dose or the, or the frequency of administration in order to get that desired effect. Now, the negative associated with that is that you're much more likely then to become reliant or dependent on alcohol, and that creates quite a, a negative feedback loop there. And you mentioned a bit earlier about the NHMRC sort of safe levels of drinking. So, you know, if you think about it either as a nightcap or just drinking alcohol in general, what is a safe level and when does it become harmful? So the NHMRC have different guidelines for a range of different factors. So we have guidelines for adolescents in the, in the first instance and uh, people aged under the age of 18 are encouraged to avoid alcohol and to delay the take-up of alcohol because significant areas of the prefrontal cortex are still developing at that time and alcohol is known to damage the connections that are being built up. For adults, we have guidelines around risky drinking on a single occasion, uh, so that relates to four standard drinks or less being recommended, and lifetime risks. Now, lifetime are those chronic conditions that on a day-to-day -day basis, we don't often think about, but there's certain types of cancer, including of the mouth, esophagus, bowel, liver, etc., and that's two standard drinks or less. Just to find for you, what's a standard drink in terms of beer, wine, spirit? Again, that's a great question and something that uh, 
I think is not often well understood. It also differs depending on what country you're in. So in Australia, we define it by any drink that contains 10 grams of ethanol or alcohol. So that equates to a nip or 30 mils of spirit, such as whiskey or vodka, approximately a small glass of wine, so around 100 mil. Now, often people pour well more than 100 mil when they pour a glass. And for beer, it's a mid-strength can or stubby. So a full-strength beer uh, in a stubby form has one and a half standard drinks. So if you were to consume two of those, you're already up to three standard drinks, not two. Yeah, I can see with that definition of a standard drink, yes, a, a liberal glass of wine can quite easily go beyond two standard drinks or a you know, liberal sort of thumb or two fingers of a spirit in a glass could, could also well go beyond that. Yes, absolutely. And I think measuring how much alcohol people had is, a, is an issue for not just sleep science but throughout the whole medical community. And we, we often don't ask uh, how much alcohol people are having or uh, are not able to accurately assess that. There are tools that can help, but uh, I, I would encourage, you know, more of that to be done in the future. Yeah, it's a good point because in my clinical practice I know I'll ask people how much alcohol they take and they'll say two glasses of wine, but I don't drill down to them, you know, what size glass wine. Right, what, how big is the glass. How big, yeah. is, how big is the glass. And that's, yeah, it's actually going to be pretty important. Yes. We we did a study with a, a sleep lab a couple of years ago now where we just had to look at the underlying characteristics of who was coming in for a sleep assessment and what drugs and medication they were using. And they'd never really asked about alcohol before. But what we found over the course of the study was that one in 10 of their population was exceeding those NHMRC guidelines. And that ultimately could be affecting their sleep and their subsequent assessment. But we don't know unless we ask. So I've talked a bit about that nightcap use. What about people who early on in life may be looking to use alcohol either to settle or using alcohol or other illicit substances as adolescents? What does that do to sleep and future sleep? The earlier that people engage in drinking, the poorer outcomes as a whole. So that's both social, education and health, including sleep-related health. We've done a couple of studies with adolescents. One where we followed a group of Australian teenagers over time and we looked at them when they were age 12 and followed them through to when they were age 18 and the different uh, drinking behaviours that they engaged in and, and use of other drugs. And those that engaged in earlier drinking, so their lifetime exposure was greater, and those who engaged in more binging episodes had poorer sleep when they became adults. In addition to that, a second study we've done, which is a large national study looking at the top 25% of drinkers in the 15 to 19 year old group and a high proportion of them have problems with sleep and we're using drugs to regulate that. Now that includes both alcohol and other depressant drugs like cannabis as well as stimulants to try and be vigilant or alert while they were wanting to be awake. And in that research that you did, do you have a sense of whether there may have been trait characteristics that predispose people to both use of substances to help settle and ongoing sleep problems in the future, or is it a causation between those two factors? I think there's a range of factors. Uh, we teach students in our courses around the biopsychosocial model of addiction, and I think there's a range of 
genetic and physiological factors, there's social factors as well as, you know, um, psychological ones. And people who are more impulsive, uh, to answer your question, or more willing to take risks are probably more likely to use alcohol and drugs earlier on. But of course, that carries risks in that group as well. And as clinicians, for, for clinicians working in this area, who should they have the radar on for? So who's a risk population to be using alcohol and then escalating use of alcohol to either mitigate sleep problems or intertwined with sleep problems? In some ways, I think it's almost a hidden population. People may not self-disclose how much they drink. Their recall may be poor or they may not understand how much they're actually drinking and how that can impact upon their health. So I think it's important for clinicians across the board to ask people. And there's a few really simple tools. So the World Health Organization have a tool called the Audit C. It's three items and can quickly assess someone's consumption of alcohol and whether it's likely to put them at harm. There's also, of course, more in-depth timeline follow-back methods where people will almost in diary form investigate how much people are drinking. But I think at least broaching the subject as this is one issue that we can ask about and if it's a problem you can make a difference is important to consider. This is getting a little bit clinical, but let's say in a, in a clinical interaction I've done my audit C and I've identified someone, you know, and I'm concerned about risky drinking and sleep. Yeah, how do I then start to chip away at that relationship they perceive well, it's not a problem I've always done that it helps me settle at night how do I start to turn that thinking around to this may be problematic and might be something I need to address I might leave the clinical uh, you know sort of assessments to you David because that's more your expertise but I would say that we have wonderful resources both here in Melbourne and further afield and that includes fact sheets if that's the more cognitive elements we're going to appeal to an individual patient, having people keep diaries about when they consume alcohol and how that affects their sleep quality is a really good way to map, you know, changes over time. Having them wear a actigraph or even looking at Fitbit data and comparing days with and without alcohol could be a way to you know, help them bring them along that train of thought. Yeah, I really like those suggestions. So I, I agree, some really great resources that Turning Point have developed and um, informed by a lot of the research that you're doing. And they, yeah, they're nice suggestions. But if someone can see it, it then changes from it being a belief, alcohol is helping my sleep, to mm, maybe it's not helping my sleep in quite the way that, that I thought it was and therefore may not be positive. I 100% agree because I think there is that nightcap myth where we sort of begun the conversation and, and people will see it as a positive to have alcohol before they nod off. However, may not realise that uh, if it becomes too regular a pattern or they're drinking too much, that those effects may be more harmful. And this is obviously an area of interest for you, an area of research, how alcohol interacts with sleep and some of the mechanisms like circadian systems. What are some of the unanswered questions for you or things that you want to work on moving forward? I think there's a lot to do in this space. So I think understanding how people use alcohol in conjunction with other other drugs so that includes medications, many of which could affect sleep, as well as other licit and illicit drugs to help regulate behaviour is an area of interest that I'm really curious about. 
So at the moment, for example, we're doing a lot with shift workers who use alcohol as, you know, one drug along with many others to try and regulate their sleep patterns. But I think that in the long term, perhaps this, this isn't a good strategy. I think we need to learn more about uh, the underlying mechanisms of alcohol and how it affects sleep, particularly in dependent populations, because we know that people who successfully come through our detox and complete that but still have problems with sleep are much more likely to relapse. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge cost to both them as an individual but also health services and communities. So I think teasing out some of those mechanisms is uh, where research can help in the future. So now you've told us the nightcap, not such a good thing. And it is actually going to have those negative impacts on sleep, particularly in the ne- in the second half of the night. Mm-hmm. If someone feels like they've become reliant on alcohol or having trouble with that and trouble with sleep, what should they do? So first, I think reaching out to their uh, health professional or GP or doctor uh, is the great step to really see how far they are along the pathway of needing help. Uh, we have a whole series of resources at Turning Point and there's other centres as well. And these include resources for psychology professionals as well as detox and longer-term programs for those who need that. But I think in, in the first instance, you know, reaching out to someone that you trust and asking, is this a problem? Uh, what are the impacts likely to be and how can we fix that? Yeah, I agree with that because it's sometimes it can be seem a bit daunting for people. There's no plan B in a sleep sense. That's what I, people tell me. Alcohol's my plan A. Mm-hmm. I don't have a plan B. Mm-hmm. And Except uh, more alcohol. Except more alcohol, right. So if they're coming to seek help, really I'm going to have to work hard on the CBT, upskill them in the CBT to get them confident in a plan B before I start to then be able to work on reducing the alcohol. Because if I just take the alcohol out without a plan B, then people just get that high distress and return of symptoms and they're really not going to be successful. I agree and I think we tend to work in silos where sleep physicians are separate to you know, addiction medicine, which is separate to mental health. And, you know, really for the future, it shouldn't matter whose door a patient or client knocks on, that we should have those resources interspersed and that expertise to to send people to where they need to go in order to get the right series of resources to help. Thanks very much, Rob. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Maura, what were the main take-home points you really took from Rowan's interview? Well, I really particularly loved his opening comment around just reminding us all that, yes, alcohol is used by you know, nearly all Australians, a lot of people in Australia, and the vast majority don't have a problem with it. So that's important to reiterate. But I think it's really important. I, I loved how uh, measured he was, and he is such a fabulous – he's a great asset to our field, isn't Absolutely. he, Rowan? I really, yeah. It's a shame I wasn't able to be there for that interview. So thanks, Rowan, if you're listening. I really appreciated that. I think the take-homes for me – were that of course there's sedative effects and that's why that's the great alluring thing with alcohol with people feel like it's going to be good for their sleep but there's diminishing returns as as the sleep goes on the detrimental effects to your sleep architecture and the you know so the general sleep quality and people generally just don't feel very good at all the next day i'm not sure how widespread this is but in in my honors thesis which we can talk about later we did see that there was we we kept them in the lab for the next day and did various psychometric testing on them and every people for sure 
even moderate amounts of alcohol the next day significantly, you know, clinically and statistically performed worse on a variety of, you know, battery of tests. I think there's a cautionary tale for, for, for all of us that just to be aware that you know, alcohol is pretty bad for your sleep, full stop. What about you? What do you, what was your sort of the take home messages from the interview? Yeah, that I've probably in my, on reflection in my own clinical practice. So this is after talking with Rowan the other day thinking about, you know, I probably don't do as good a job as I should of exploring alcohol use, yeah. how people use it, in, exactly in what quantity. Mm. So again, thanks, Rowan, i got to tell yeah. you. So since yeah. the interview, I've gone to the NHMRC website, printed off a visual chart of what a standard drink is and yeah. how to recognise what 10 grams of alcohol mm. is, mm-hmm. to then laminate, have in my office, be able to use with people to get a much better idea about what a glass is, what what a glass is is about exactly what their alcohol intake is to then get an idea about may that be impacting on their sleep and may it be one of the factors that we need to address. So what would you do differently clinically? Because we've talked about how challenging this, uh, these sort of patients can be who are, who are relying on alcohol to, to help them sleep or their perception is that helps them to sleep. What do you think you might do differently from now on? Yeah, so one of the things I talked to Rowan about in the interview is really trying to give people the reassurance that I'm going to work hard with them to upskill them in a plan B for sleep. So upskilling them, for example, in cognitive and behavioral therapy for insomnia. So they've got some non-drug strategies around managing sleep. Yeah. Because absolutely the long-term goal is to reduce that reliance on alcohol as a sleep aid, but reassuring them that I'm not going to pull the rug out from under them and leave them with nothing. Yeah. Because that's a surefire way for people just to get more anxious, to drink more, to not re-engage. So in essence, if I sort of keep in my lane or sort of see where my comfort zone is as a sleep specialist, Mm -hmm. I think if someone's got problematic enough drinking at a high enough dose where I'd be wanting to transition them to an alternative and then be withdrawing, that's when I'd get one of my addiction specialists in the mix. Mm -hmm. If someone's at a lower dose and we're really got a more long-term plan if we want to just reduce drinking, but it's not so such a high level, yeah, that's when I wouldn't need to use a hypnotic in the short term. We'd just be upskilling them in the CBT whilst, yeah. and when they were more confident, then looking at reducing the alcohol and fading yeah. that out. So if people have trouble with alcohol or someone you know is having trouble with alcohol and their sleep, I'd encourage you to see your healthcare professional or have your family member or friend see a healthcare professional because help is available. Uh, There's great resources on the Turning Point website and we'll put a link to those in the show notes. So Dave, what's your clinical tip of the month? I've already alluded to this to some extent, but it's as a clinician, if you're working with people really with any health problem, and particularly a sleep problem, to really get a good idea of quantifying their alcohol intake. So ask about alcohol intake. Is it problematic? Rowan talked about the Audit C tool from the WHO. I've since had a look at that. It's a very simple tool that can be used in clinical practice, only three questions. And then also trying to quantify in grams of alcohol, because then you can really get your head around where do they sit? Are they above the recommended health uh, threshold for safe drinking on the NHMRC website, which is an Australian government resource. There's a really nice visual table of different size drinks and how much alcohol they are in grams, which I think will be a really helpful resource when working with patients. I agree. So Moira, what's your pick of the month? You've, only, you've already had two goes at this, so come on. <laughs> this is my time, which I've already mentioned earlier. Did you know this is my first ever paper published 
and it was in, it was published in the year 2000. It took me a little while to write it up because I was busy, you know, do, doing my uh, doctorate in health psych and having babies and all sorts of things. So Matt Norton ended up just saying, look, just can we just get that paper written? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's Moira M.F. Scanlon et al., um, 2000, in the European Respiratory Journal, The Moderate Effects of Alcohol on Obstructive Sleep Apnea. I didn't, I sort of sort of forgot about that paper, you know. As you know, I'm more a clinician. I haven't been doing a lot of research, particularly not as first author. But I hear that it's had lots of citations. <laughs> Someone was saying, oh, that's, is that you? <laughs> I didn't realise that was you. So I'm being really bold and just I'm just putting – because I think it was a really good paper. I was really proud of that study. And we did – and you know, so, yeah, so check it out. Anyway, check out the um, the moderate effects of alcohol. And it was very moderate amounts. We got them into the lab and had they had white wine. Uh, it, was all, it was all males. And we had – it was a randomised control trial. A neat little study. Study. It was fantastic. Had you know, first class honours, by the way, with that paper. Congratulations. <laughs> anyway, that's the paper that's there. What about? So I'm being. It's very facetious of me just to put my own paper in there, but because it was on topic, I, I couldn't resist. What about you? What's your pick of the month? So there's a pair of papers that have been published this week in scientific reports from the Monash Group and the Alertness CRC. Ah, yes, I did see that. And they are, they are so up my alley. It <laughs> fixes a clinical problem or addresses a clinical problem for me, so helping to look at a simple tool that can predict where somebody's circadian phase sits. Yeah, yeah. They're geeky. Fantastic. It's got, it's got maths. <laughs> they use technology. It's got a skin temperature sensor. It's got the works. What is not to love about that <laughs> research? So, you know, led by Julia Stone, she's first author on both papers, mm. Really nice work, and for me, the sort of promise of potentially a quite simple tool that can be used in workplaces, yes. in the clinical setting, for that missing piece I have as a clinician about where does somebody's circadian phase sit, so that then I can start to use the tools about manipulating that or stabilising and then training that. So look out for the next uh, episode, which will be episode 45, where we'll be talking about sharing a bed with a partner or sleeping uh, together, uh, as well as some upcoming topics such as cannabinoids and sleep. So thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you've got suggestions for further episodes or any questions for us, email at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And if you like the podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe via any podcast app. Thanks very much. See ya. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.